Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 286, Noble Pursuits. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Pamela, Francis, and Dimitri for signing up already. After generations of devastating war, England had found itself at peace. And that leaves a question that we haven't had to ask in a while. What did the Anglo-Saxons actually do during peacetime? Well, for the regular freemen, which was the vast majority of the population, this is actually a fairly straightforward question with a straightforward answer. Peace meant that their obligations to the Ferd suddenly lessened, which gave them more time to take care of matters at home. So you might imagine that they were spending more time with their families and friends, more time probably in the fields working, and generally doing the sort of thing that they didn't have much time to take care of during the decades of war. Unfortunately, we don't know any specifics because the deeply classed society of the Anglo-Saxons meant that none of these details were considered important enough to record. However, peacetime likely had a profound effect upon average people. If you were living in a typical Anglo-Saxon village, you could finally spend your whole year tending to your crops and livestock. You might even have the time and energy to build and maintain your structures. Furthermore, your whole village might finally be home for the holidays. Peace very likely could have meant that everyone finally had time to rest and enough to eat, possibly for the first time in a very long time. It also likely meant that you weren't worried about your loved ones dying in a battlefield far from home. And it is possible that we're missing something critical here, but it's hard to imagine how peacetime wouldn't have been a very welcome change for most of the people living their lives on the island. It would have been a chance to get back to normal. Now, the noble class had a slightly different response to peace. While the people at the bottom, who were keeping the economic engine of England running, were likely simply just enjoying a relief of the near-constant military service that had been disrupting their lives, the nobility were a little bit different because they were sitting atop the heap, and they suddenly found themselves staring at an enormous economic surplus. You see, thanks to the work that had started with King Alfred, by the time of King Athelstan, England was on the path to becoming one of the most well-administered and wealthiest kingdoms in Europe. The foundations set down by Alfred, and tended to by his children, and then solidified by his grandchildren, had reshaped Britain. And this organizational success is what created the kingdom that was going to go on to reshape the world. Now that English economy that I'm talking about was being spurred on by the burrs, the towns, and the myriad other civil construction projects that had been put underway. Furthermore, the administrative shiring of England was proving to be an engine of effective governance and taxation. And this efficiency further enhanced the wealth created by the investment in civil infrastructure. Additionally, the generations of war had left England with an unexpected administrative advantage. You see, during the times of war, the eldermen were forced to learn how to administer their own lands effectively, without much support from the king, because the king, and the king's resources, could be needed elsewhere at any moment. And decades of this reality meant that there were now generations of nobles who were quite skilled at running their own lands. And thanks to this well-earned expertise, these eldermen were doing smart things like employing shire reeves, 
what we now call sheriffs, and other officials to better administer their lands. They were even beginning to divide their shires into smaller units to be governed. These were called hundreds, or in the north, wapentakes. And this had a massive impact on the landscape of Britain that you can actually still see today. But we're going to talk more about that in a later episode. But for right now, what we need to focus on is that administratively and monetarily, England was booming. And within 40 years, England would be the most well-organized and wealthiest kingdom in the West. And right here, in the 930s, it was already within striking distance of that goal. And with that expansion of wealth and administration, and the creation of public works projects that would further enhance that wealth, we're seeing an explosion in surpluses of wealth. And due to the structure of the medieval economy and culture, those surpluses weren't being enjoyed by the everyday people who generated them. Instead, they were being passed upwards and were concentrating in the top echelons of society. Consequently, Unferth the peasant wasn't seeing all that much from this prosperity. But Athelstan was suddenly swimming in wealth. Furthermore, for the first time in his life, he wasn't scrambling for power or fighting to hold on to it. Nor was he in conflict with other nations seeking to define the boundaries of that power. Instead, he had a chance to breathe. And he also had all this money. So that meant it was time to have a little fun. And at exactly this time, we start to see an expansion in literary culture and education. Because Athelstan, like his grandfather Alfred, valued knowledge and education. And it was a value that he likely picked up from the West Saxon tradition of educating noble children at court. I mean, Alfred was raised in court by his father, Athelwolf. And then Athelflad and Edward were in turn raised in court by Alfred. And this process consisted of being educated by both male and female tutors, and not just in the matters of strategy, rule, and administration. They were also taught literacy, though they probably only learned Old English, because Alfred felt that the clergy were the only ones who needed to know Latin. They were also taught all the virtues of nobility, including obedience, humility, kindness, and gentleness. And we have to wonder what kind of grades Edward got in those classes, given how little his subjects seemed to like him. And actually, Edward doesn't appear to have been all that good of a student in general, probably much to Alfred's frustration. Because even in the records, Edward is noted as being an unenthusiastic reader. But Athelstan was different. Athelstan clearly loved reading and the pursuit of knowledge. And perhaps it was the result of his time with Athelflaed, when he was probably raised alongside her daughter, Elfwyn, in court. And we can assume he was raised in that way, because while we don't know the specifics of his education, we know that his intellectual capacity and his interest in education were the frequent topics of the various praise poems written about him. Furthermore, we see a wealth of poetry coming out of his reign, and even the charters from this era show a marked increase in the attention to the written word. And all of this points to the likelihood that the court of King Athelstan, much like the courts of the kings of old, were a place where poetry and recitation were key parts of an evening's entertainment, especially during this period. We can also assume that his foster children, in particular, were the direct beneficiaries of this small renaissance, because it's quite likely that Athelstan raised these noble boys in the same style that he had been raised, and that would have been indispensable knowledge if they were going to grow up to become successful rulers themselves. And spoilers, they would. But it wasn't all poems and riddles. 
Athelstan was also an active and energetic king, so it's likely that he enjoyed the more traditional Anglo-Saxon noble pursuits, just like his father and grandfather had. So we're talking about practicing sword fighting, hawking, and of course, hunting. And make no mistake about this, hawking and hunting were for enjoyment. Feeding the hounds, horses, and hawks that were necessary for these pursuits likely outweighed any food that a successful hunt would have produced. And that's before we even get into manpower and the additional resources that went into the various methods that were used in a hunt. This wasn't about food, because providing food wasn't noble. Dealing with food was something that the lower classes and the women handled. In fact, the word lord, Lafford, means breadkeeper. So keeper, not maker. The Lafford was the person who handed out the bread to his retainers. What we're talking about here is ceremony and honor culture, not the practicalities of survival or providing. And as for the person who made that bread, well, that's the bread maker, the Lafdige, or in our modern tongue, the lady. And this cultural perspective is a likely explanation for why there aren't old English cookbooks. And if you recall, when we did the Anglo-Saxon meat experiment on the members feed, we had to rely on a document that was written by a traveler who visited the homelands of the original Anglo-Saxon settlers, near to around the time that they left and came to Britain, because that was the best we had. The fact is that Anglo-Saxon writers simply didn't find the creation of food to be all that interesting. How meals were prepared is left out of their documents, and their poetry, and their tales. The best we can get is when Elfric talks about a cook and a baker, and kind of refers to them as craftsmen in his colloquy. But that's not exactly a rousing endorsement, and he actually later implies that no one of status would ever engage in the behavior of cooking or baking. That's just not what a noble did. And there's an irony to this, of course. Because even more so than today, food was the direct source of the wealth that the entire Anglo-Saxon kingdom stood on. It was food rent that had produced these nobles, and these governments, and these armies. Without their agriculture, the Anglo-Saxons couldn't have existed. And yet cooking and producing food was seen as a mundane task that should be left to lesser people, namely peasants and women. And therefore, it simply wasn't valued by Anglo-Saxon society. And this disinterest in the acquisition and preparation of food is so acute that most of the time scholars have to turn to the records of food rent to even get an idea of what food was available. And those food rent documents are also rather rare. Fact is, it wasn't worthy of mention. And therefore, a lot of it has become invisible to us here in the future. But eating that food, well now that was interesting. While we don't know how it was made, we do hear quite a bit about the extravagant feasts that were thrown by the nobility. Feasts that lasted for days and featured rare foods, spices, and of course large amounts of alcohol. And much of this is likely to be understood as a form of conspicuous consumption. It was a deliberate display of status. Because when it comes down to it, these elegant lords and ladies of the past were essentially tacky show-offs. They were that couple with a summer home that they never use, and you always find a way to mention that they bought a new boat. But speaking of conspicuous consumption, that brings us back to hunting. When the upper classes went hawking, or when they went on a hunt, it wasn't for food. It was for pleasure. It was because that's what a noble did. It was also a display of your wealth, because it wasn't cheap. And thus, it demonstrated your power. 
Now, working out precisely how the English hunted can be a little bit difficult, because prior to 1066, descriptions of hunts were few and far between. But thankfully, we do have a few bits and pieces that will allow us to work out what was likely keeping the upper-class men entertained. And to begin with, you have the matter of where you could go hunting. We see references to hunting lands and potentially even hunting enclosures during the late Anglo-Saxon era. The trouble, though, is that we're not sure which is which. Because the Old English word for hunting enclosures, haga, actually has several different meanings. And thanks to this, scholars have to work out the meaning of these hunting-related entries through context. And while that does help, it's not perfect. Even when Haga appears next to the name for an animal, there's still often a bit of confusion as to what exactly is going on. And that's not helped by the fact that many Anglo-Saxon words for our various animals also themselves have different meanings. For example, der can refer to a deer, but it isn't necessarily referring to a deer, because it can also refer to wild animals in general. And so, you probably can understand the confusion when scholars come across the term derhaga. What exactly is a derhaga? I mean, if literal, it could mean a maintained park that's fully enclosed specifically to house deer. And we have these today, and the ultra-wealthy pay the price of a new car to hunt in them. And it was actually in this sort of enclosure that Dick Cheney shot his friend in the face while they were actually supposed to be pinning a bunch of pheasants against a chain-link fence. However, the Durhaga could easily also have a less literal meaning. It might have just been a wooded area where deer were known to roam. And that might be the case, since the roe deer were a popular type of prey for the upper classes of England during this period, alongside hearts, boar, and hare. And the trouble with roe deer is that they really don't like being confined, so a strictly bounded and fenced Durhaga that was designed for roebuck is unlikely. And because of the nature of the language, Durhaga might not even be for deer. It could just mean a patch of wildlands where any kind of animal is known to roam. And that's just one messy term out of a whole bunch of messy terms from a messy language. Old English is known for this. And actually, modern English still has these exact same problems. Take the word park. Is it the act of leaving your car somewhere? Or a nature preserve that you're walking through? Or the place with a jungle gym for the kids? Or where you go to ride Thunder Mountain Railroad? Or where you go to watch a soccer match? You know, park is a hard word to define, so maybe we should park this issue for a little bit, at least until we park ourselves on a couple seats at the park and we can really get into it. But however the Anglo-Saxon hunting lands were bounded and defined, the records show that since at least the time of Alfred, a lord had the right to hunt on his lands. However, later documents also make clear that the king was free to hunt wherever he damn well pleased. And that was a right that obviously wasn't reciprocated in the other direction. And by at least the time of Canute, if you hunted on a king's lands, you better watch the hell out and get ready for a pretty hefty fine. So you had lands that you could hunt on, and the king could also hunt on if you wanted to. And to be clear, the king hunting on your lands wasn't exactly a minor thing. This wasn't just a matter of the king just riding through for an afternoon or a weekend. We have records of Anglo-Saxon kings actually residing in their hunting lands, and then, due to one political crisis or another, having to relocate to one of their royal holdings. And they actually use the term residing, which makes it seem rather clear that the kings, with at least a portion of their court, were encamped whenever they went hunting. And that actually makes perfect sense. I mean, courts were large operations. The king was a really important person. And so going hunting, he was obviously going to bring a lot of people with him. 
I mean, they even brought their own butchers. It was called a Carnifex. And in later records, following the Norman Conquest, we'll read of hunting lodges, which were massive buildings that were set up. And while it's not clear whether or not the English kings used hunting lodges in the late Anglo-Saxon period, it seems quite likely that at the very least, they were encamped. Which meant that, like any other royal visit, this would have been quite a burden on the local lord. And adding to the weirdness of the legal issues regarding hunting during this era, you have the issue of Mercia. You see, in Mercian charters at around the same time as Alfred, we see lands that were being granted free of the obligation to allow a king to hunt. Meaning that you get the lands, and you don't have to worry about this issue of the king and his court coming through and killing all your deer. And the question that I have is how did Athelstan interpret his rights in relation to these charters? Did he view it in the West Saxon lens? Or the Mercian lens? Did he say, I can hunt wherever the hell I want? Or did he respect ancient Mercian rights? I don't know. But it's an interesting cultural split between Wessex and Mercia. Now, as for how they went about hunting, well, traps and snares were common methods at this point in history. In fact, we even see place names that reference traps. Lutigar is their word for a trap that's triggered when disturbed by an animal. And Hale means a small valley. So Lutigar Hale is a small valley that is good for trapping, right? Well, there are at least half a dozen towns in England that are named after that. Buckinghamshire, Wiltshire, Gloucestershire, Sussex, Essex, and Somerset all have towns named Luggers Hall, or at least slurred versions of that. The fact is, trapping was common. But there's a good chance that traps and snares were carried out by huntsmen who were actually seeking meat for food, rather than nobles who were hunting for sport, because trapping doesn't appear to be all that tied to the nobility. Instead, the nobles engaged in three primary methods of hunting. First, they went hawking, and that's an ancient pastime. Now, falconry was less common in England, largely because hawks were easier to get in Britain. In fact, the 8th century King Athelbert of Kent wrote to the Archbishop of Saxony, like you do, and asked him to send over some falcons because he didn't have any. And like a good archbishop, he sent some falcons over, which was nice. But just to make sure he didn't ruffle any feathers, he sent a couple hawks and a falcon to Athelbert's overlord, King Athelbald of Mercia. He was the one who had a thing for nuns. And this desire to go hawking continued. Edward and Alfred both loved to go hawking. And we suspect that Athelstan was no different. Hawking appears to have been particularly symbolic of the highest noble classes, likely because it was really expensive. Furthermore, we know that early Mercian charters include areas specifically for hawking, as do East Anglia and Surrey. And because hawking was so expensive, we start to see some changes in the way food rent was being assessed in the late Anglo-Saxon era. And suddenly, it starts to reflect a noble interest in hawking. Nobles begin demanding that their tenants provide money specifically for the purchase and maintenance of hawks. For example, 10 pounds was demanded from the Shire of Worcester for a Norwegian hawk. And we see similar demands from Oxford, Northampton, Leicester, and Warwick. Another way we know hawking was expensive is that if your lord gave you a hawk, there was a good chance that when you died, he'd reclaim it. For example, if you were a thane or a member of the king's household in Berkshire during the time of Edward, if you died, well, your estate would have to return the hawks and the hunting dogs that you were given, much like how the weapons and armor that many retainers had had to be returned to their lord upon their death. And that should give you an idea of how highly prized these items were. 
and how they were issued out by the king, probably in the same way that a king would have given weapons and rings in exchange for loyal service. Again, this wasn't about food. Hawking and noble hunting was about status and power. Now, the second method of noble hunting was through the use of the stall. Retainers and local peasants would set up nets and other temporary structures in the hunting grounds and angle them in a way to lead any prey into the kill zone. Then the noble would send men with sticks, beaters, to the far end of the stall and have them drive the animals towards the nobles and the huntsmen, who were waiting with bows, spears, and sometimes even swords. Once the animals came into range, they were killed. And this was such a common method that we sometimes see the maintenance of these stalls as part of the written duty for the tenants living on a lord's land. The third method of noble hunting was on horseback. Now, there's a persistent belief among those familiar with this era that the early English didn't ride horses. But they did. And hunting on horseback likely involved releasing dogs to rouse their prey, and then the horse nobles would give chase, supported by retainers on foot and they'd run down the animal until finally it was cornered or exhausted. Then they'd kill it with a sword or spear. And this was likely a common method for the wealthier noblemen. And in fact, King Edmund nearly died while hunting on horseback in this manner. He was chasing a red deer, and the deer went headlong right off a cliff, and King Edmund's horse nearly followed, only stopping right at the edge. Because the fact is that even as a pure leisurely pursuit, hunting could be quite dangerous even without Dick Cheney. For example, the stall method I mentioned could be a serious hazard to your health because if you found yourself standing in the kill zone, facing down a boar with nothing but a spear, well, you better not miss. And that's just the danger from your prey. A noble out on a hunt and away from his camp was uniquely vulnerable to predators of the political sort. And it's no surprise that we have records of nobles being lured into the woods by their rivals with the promise of a hunt, only to get murdered. And later on in the story, we're going to see that not one, but two of King William the Conqueror's sons were killed while hunting in the New Forest. Two. Separately. And that's a bit fishy if you ask me. But even if you assume nothing shady was happening, the fact remains that hunting was dangerous and potentially deadly. But the nobles kept doing it. Because hunting is what a noble did. But the problem with these activities is that they weren't a substitute for war. See, there's a problem with all of this peace. Even though the kingdom was well-administered and was increasingly prosperous, being rich and having the time to hunt wasn't what made a noble a noble. The Anglo-Saxons might have converted to Christianity, but don't think that the warrior culture that dominated the days of Penda had left the island along with the old gods. Because it hadn't. The concept of the king as the giver of rings also hadn't gone away. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle specifically describes Athelstan as a giver of rings and lauds his brother Edmund for the glory that he earned in the shield wall in battle. These people might be styling themselves as the English, but this was still the old Anglo-Saxon culture, and it placed an enormous amount of pressure upon their young noblemen to prove themselves in battle. Establishing yourself as a capable warrior was part of how a nobleman came of age. And the higher the noble's status, the more critical this stage of your debut became. A good leader was someone who led his men to victory in battle. It was through victory in battle that treasure was acquired. 
which then could be handed out to a noble's loyal followers, often in grand ceremonial feasts. And by doing this, the lord increased his status and thus attracted more followers, further enhancing his army's ability on the field. And that enabled him to defeat more enemies in the field of battle and take their lands or demand tributes, which he once again would give a portion of to his followers. And that would attract even more followers. Are you seeing how this works? The symbolic nature of this, you know, the use of war as a way to become a man and the use of war booty as a way to enhance your status had created a cultural need for war among the nobility. And then you have the cold, hard economics of it all. Due to the Viking raids and the later Scandinavian invasions, we've been dealing with over a century of war. And this constant war had resulted in the nobility becoming accustomed to being regularly called to battle. And that led to a lot of changes in the way society was organized. And a big part of that was the creation of the Ferd. And in many ways, this was a boon to the nobility because it meant that over the decades, most of the male population of West Saxon-controlled lands became accustomed to and amenable to being called up for war. That wasn't the norm until Alfred and his descendants hit the scene. And it was this cultural shift that provided a large part of what turned England into a military powerhouse and also gave it the stability necessary to become an economic powerhouse as well. Unlike their predecessors, and unlike many of the kings across the channel, the King of England was able to call upon enormous amounts of manpower and have it marshaled relatively unquestioned. That was unheard of, and it allowed the king to not just engage in stunning military campaigns, it also enabled him to launch large-scale public works projects, such as the creation of towns, burrs, bridges, ports, pretty much anything that would enhance the wealth and status of England. And the workers generally would come when called, because that work had been normalized, and now it was just part of their duty. But all of this came with downsides, too. The fact that England had been turned into a machine of war, and that it had been accelerating for generations, meant that English society was molding in ways that didn't just allow for war, it encouraged it. Just because we had the fur didn't mean that there weren't also personal war bands. And because of the years of war, these lords had acquired enormous retinues of armed, skilled, and deadly men. And they were men who had come into their service for the most part because this is how you gained honor, status, and wealth. But if there were no campaigns and the Lord wasn't even receiving any tributes from defeated foes, then there wasn't much wealth to be handed out. And if there weren't battles, then there certainly wasn't an opportunity to increase your status or honor. The zero-sum nature of Anglo-Saxon life provided ambitious nobles with few opportunities for advancement, and war was one of their only opportunities. That made peace rather dangerous, because suddenly you had disaffected eldermen who weren't getting as rich as they'd been in previous years. And beneath them were thanes, who were also less than pleased that suddenly the rewards they'd grown accustomed to, and that their parents and grandparents had been accustomed to, were coming to an end. Yet a whole country of very wealthy people who had made it their livelihood to engage in violence. Not just personally, but also by commanding large forces of their underlings in battle. And suddenly, they had very little to do other than to go hunting and feast and neither of those options would advance their dynasty. 
The massive downward social pressure that they were dealing with because of the wealth concentration meant that unless you actively took something from someone else, you probably weren't going to do as well as your parents. Almost everyone except for the people at the very tippy top of society were doing worse than the previous generation, despite the fact that the kingdom was also more prosperous and efficient than it had ever been. Sound familiar? And that's where the zero-sum nature of this became so intensely dangerous. Because if these wealthy, heavily armed warlords couldn't rely on a military campaign to boost their position, then there was a good chance they looked to other methods. Like blood feuds with nearby nobles. And this wasn't just an English problem. Many of the western kingdoms of this era suffered from this flaw. For example, when King Hulthaw annexed the weakened kingdom of Brekeniog in the early 930s, there is a good chance that he was being propelled by a very similar cultural need. Keeping nobles happy meant maintaining a constant flow of gifts and treasure, preferably through warfare. So while a kingdom at peace sounds like a good thing, due to the cultural influences in play, King Athelstan was sitting on a powder keg. And I guess it should come as no surprise that in 934, just six years into this era of peace, we're told that King Athelstan launched an attack on Scotland by both land and sea. And I'm sure his nobles loved him for it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can find all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 